0: The reading for today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized And there were added that day about three thousand souls. This is the Lord of the Lord, the Word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you, Ashley. Well, before we get into uh, our text this morning, our continuing uh, series in the Book of Acts, walking through the Book of Acts, I just I have to tell you uh, about uh, something that happened last night that was just um, really, again. My heart is just full, Uh, a culmination of, it seems like, of of prayers and just, um, and hope. And that is, uh, uh, we've been doing a lot in prison ministry, as many of you know, and I've been involved in that ministry for about 15 years now, and um, we have this All of Life night coming up with the Alongside Ministries on February 11th, and uh, through... Uh, Cody, who leads us here, uh, his diligent work, the chaplain down in Florence Prison, North Unit, Samuel Lee, whom I've known for a number of years and who is uh, very persistent and diligent, um, and the guys that alongside ministry, so Collis and Austin and Ken, uh, they were able to arrange something that frankly doesn't happen with the Arizona Department of Corrections. Um, they invited the entire redemption band to go down there with their equipment, which is verboten, to take equipment like that into uh, prisons. And uh, they invited us all down there, including women were allowed to go into this uh, men's unit. And, um, and we did a, a, an hour and a half long concert, the band did. I was able to uh, preach for about 20 minutes. I know some of you are like, why can't you do that here? Why is it always 40? But um, anyway. And it was absolutely magnificent. So usually when we go down there and do services down there, we take a CD player and we just kind of sing along to the songs on the CD. This was live music, and it was good live music, as you know. And it was just a, it was just a, a, a really really good time. And so um, we were so excited. Uh, and it, you know, most of us didn't get back until about 10 o'clock last night. Cody's right back here at 6 o'clock this morning, so. It was, I just wanted to report on that. It was a really good time, and the, the prisoners down there were so thankful, and the room was just full. The room holds about 125, and there's probably 150 guys there, and and they sang loud, and, and they were so thankful uh, for the ministry of this church. They really believe this is their church. You need to understand that. They believe this is their church, so um, maybe Redemption now has an 11th congregation, Florence North Unit, so really awesome. All right, let me get into the book of Acts again. We are working through the book of Acts, all 28 uh, chapters. And chapter two, which Cody started last week, is what's known as the pivot point of this book. Everything that happens after chapter two is really born of what goes on in chapter two. Uh, And that is that the Holy Spirit is coming and has come and is being poured out on the disciples. And and there's 120 of them at this point. Uh, But not only that, they are also really diligently uh, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he's alive. And one of the things that's important for us to remember is that the arrival of the Holy Spirit is definitive proof that God's promises are being realized, that he's promised Power for salvation through the Messiah. In other words, forgiveness and rescue for our sin to make us new creations, as Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, that we are given not just a second chance, but all the chances that we need with God because of His grace and His love. And we are given dignity. I'd never thought of it that way until just recently. But, but our, our brokenness brings about shame and guilt, which is really kind of the opposite of dignity. But what Jesus does is he restores us and he makes us whole. We're no longer divided people, and that gives us dignity. We know that even though uh, we are sinners, and we even continue to sin today, even though we're in Christ, that he's given us our dignity because he's restored us uh, in this relationship with with God but it's not just for power for salvation but it's also power for living living as a citizen of the kingdom of God that we are being sanctified every day we are moving Uh, sometimes in ways that we can't recognize, but every day we are moving ever closer to being conformed to the image of God's Son, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. This process of sanctification, that we are constantly a work in progress, that what Paul says in chapter 1 of his letter to the church in Philippi, that I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. And that we also become people who are long-suffering because we have hope. And that long-suffering means that we are patient and enduring and steadfast, and, and we have perseverance because we have this hope of what Jesus has done. And another thing I want to mention is I, I just we cannot forget the, the amount of prayer that has gone into the disciples up until this point. There's been a lot of prayer as well. So we remember or we're reminded so far that prayer and the Holy Spirit is what powers the person who is in Christ, the Christian, the one who follows Christ. It's prayer and the Holy Spirit that powers us and it's not our will. And I'll tell you, that's a wrestling match all the time and a tough one. Um, But it's prayer and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lloyd Ogilvie, the great old pastor, uh, wrote this. Prayer is not an attempt to get God to overcome his reluctance to guide us, but rather prayer puts our wills in a condition to receive what he wills for us. And and again, I I, I say this all the time because I think we need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, the Christian life and faith is never about God submitting his will to us, but about God um, uh, giving us his will and us submitting ourselves to him. It's not about God endorsing our agenda, but us understanding and knowing God and what his agenda is and then seeing where he's working and then submitting to that. Some examples, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. In other words, the wise person is the one who actually humbly submits to God's will. That's what Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer in in Matthew chapter 6. Our God in heaven, hallowed be your name, uh, your, your, uh, your will be done uh, on king, in, in, in heaven as it is on earth. Okay? He says, your will be done. Even Jesus is saying, your will needs to be done. So he's submitting to the Father's will. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect, And then 1 John chapter 2, because of sin the world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So today's passage, and Ashley didn't read the whole thing, we'll get into that, but today's passage is uh, Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts. And and I will tell you, uh, some might say, this is Frank setting the bar low, and that's okay, I'm really good with that today. Um, uh, This is a very challenging passage to understand. Um, there's no way in the time that I have that we can uh, run out every ground ball on this passage and, and look at every single implication and nuance. This passage has a tremendous amount of what, what's known by some people as second references. And in other words, Peter is preaching something uh, and he's making references that are not necessarily familiar to us today, but they were familiar to everybody who was there listening to him. And so it takes a great deal of study and explanation to understand every little thing that he says. And every little thing that he says is important here. Uh, But here's what I'm saying, I guess. I'm I'm not asking you to have pity on me this morning. I'm letting you know that you're gonna have to work harder than usual this morning, okay? So hang in there, make sure you have your caffeine or energy drink or whatever it is, okay, Uh, to be ready for this, okay? Now, there are 10 major sermons in the book of Acts, and this is the first one. And various people preach, but Peter preaches a lot of them. Um, This is the most complicated one. I will say this about the sermons in Acts. Now, listen to this. This is good to, I think, helpful for us as well. Every sermon we have in the book of Acts, uh, we're pretty sure they're just summaries of what was really said. Because if you were to read these sermons out loud, they're, they're done in just a couple of uh, of minutes. So they're not word for word. In fact, we know from history that most early sermons throughout all the centuries and even into the early uh, 20th century, so even as recently as maybe a hundred years ago, most sermons were anywhere from three to eight hours long. Three to eight hours long. Literally, you would pack a lunch To go to church. So whenever somebody says, hey, pack a lunch, Frank's preaching, okay, literally that's what they would would do. Now, one of the reasons I bring this up is because I I often hear people reading the book of Acts and kind of romanticizing what's going on in there, not the part about Stephen being stoned to death, but romanticizing, you know, a lot of the other parts. And, And you'll hear them say something like, I just want our church to be like the early church. No, you don't. (laughs) You don't really want it to be like the early church because you'd be here all day on Sunday uh, listening to preaching. And so, one of the things that Cody said last week that I think is really helpful to remember is that the book of Acts was written so that the church today would be the continuation of the church in the book of Acts and not a duplication of the church of Acts. That's what's going on here. So, Let's dive into it. I'm going to go back and and catch the last couple of verses of last week's sermon, because they lead right into what Peter's doing here, and they're important for uh, context. So chapter 2, starting at verse 12, and I'll read through the first part of verse 14. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? In other words, the Holy Spirit had come upon them, and they were all speaking in these different tongues. But others mocking said they're filled with new wine they're drunk they're drunk they've been drinking but peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them so the catalyst the catalyst of people standing up to speak is the accusation that they are filled with with wine now i want you to think about peter again cody mentioned this last week it's something that we've just been amazed at watching you think about Peter in the Gospels, okay? What a goof. He was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I just, it's not in the text, but I just imagine all the other guys with Jesus and Peter, every time Peter would open his mouth, they would just cringe. And they're like, what is he going to say this time? And we're going to be associated with him, so we're going to be in trouble. And it just, you know, just, it was awful. Open mouth, insert foot. Now, in the book of Acts, every time Peter gets up, there is power. There is power. He's a completely different person. And he's got this amazing presence, the presence of a leader. What's different? Did he go to an Anthony Robbins seminar or something? No. The resurrection changes things. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out on him. Hear, hear me. The resurrection changes things. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on him. And I want you to think about this too. Uh, the, the Jewish people for centuries had a theology of resurrection. There was a sect known as the Sadducees that denied the resurrection. But the vast majority of the Jews, including the, the Pharisees, believed in the resurrection, talked about the resurrection uh, for years and years and years. But here's what's happening right now in this moment. Their theology of resurrection now has flesh on it. It's become real. And they're having to deal with that. That's really hard. But it's undeniable. And the resurrection that has flesh on it is Jesus. They're having to understand that his resurrection is an affirmation of everything that Jesus said he was and an affirmation of everything that he taught. And for Peter specifically, he now sees this in light of walking with Jesus for three years and listening to his teaching and never getting it for three years, never getting it. But now all of Jesus's teaching is crystallized for him and the power of the resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit has changed everything in his life. He is a new creation, and he's, he becomes this magnificent leader, not under his power, but under God's power, and this famous sermon that P- Peter preaches here is the so what of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, as Cody said last week, again, this is really important to remember. I'm glad Cody talked about it last, uh, last week. This is not the first time the Holy Spirit appears in the Bible. He's all through the Bible, including in creation, but the Holy Spirit is now here to start this new work of the church to proclaim the good news to everybody and to be God's witnesses everywhere. So today the big idea in the sermon, the big idea is that Jesus is alive so those in Christ have power. So let's read the first paragraph. There's four paragraphs essentially to his sermon. Here's the first one. But Peter standing with the eleven Lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Let me just mention that. The third hour of the day would be nine o'clock in the morning. It's not that people don't drink in the morning. He's just making a point here. Okay, I'm sure there might be somebody who's had a drink before nine o'clock in the morning. But he's making a point there. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter starts in verse 14. He says, let this be known and give ear to my words. Now, it's important to understand what he's saying there is um, you need to understand the facts of what's going on let this be known and then give ear to my words is the affective part. You need to go and do something about this. So he's not just communicating information, he's communicating information that should should then go from the the mind to the heart and should spur us into action. So it's cognitive and affective. It's the entire uh, package. It's to know and to do. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, being a disciple of Jesus is not just about knowing who he is, but actually experiencing the life in Christ and, and doing ministry where you are. And in verse 15, this is something that I find interesting. Peter was not afraid to tell people that they were wrong. People's not afraid to say, no, you're wrong about that. Sometimes we are very timid timid about correcting people who are just, they just have the wrong information. But we're timid about that because we live in this age of tolerance and, and, and we don't want to be labeled as mean people and we want to, be, we just want to be kind and be friends and kind of sing kumbaya together and that's all right, but sometimes it's not quite enough. Paul in Ephesians 5.11 says this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Take no part in the works of unfruitful, uh, in, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So let me just give you a rundown, because as a pastor, I feel like maybe I hear these things more often than some of you, but I will give you a rundown, not of things I've heard once, but of things I've heard quite commonly that are just wrong. And I've been compelled by the Spirit to speak up at times when I hear this. Okay, here you go. Uh, the Bible never teaches that Jesus is God. Wrong. The Bible teaches that polygamy is okay. Wrong. There is polygamy in the Bible, but God's not up there celebrating about it. Okay? The Bible teaches that we can do whatever we want to to the creation. I hear that a lot. We can do whatever we want to creation. He's given us dominion over the creation. Those are Christians saying that. Oh, really? Do you understand what that Hebrew word translated dominion really means? It means that we are... Faithful, loving stewards of the resources that God has given us. And as wise stewards, we are not to do whatever we want to the creation, but we are to honor it as God's creation. The Bible teaches that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were lovers. No. Now here's one that I ran into on four separate occasions when I was working on my Master of Arts in Communication at ASU. Four separate times from four separate people in four different classes as we were having a discussion, uh, going back and forth with students and professors and things like that. The first time I heard it, I was so shocked that I couldn't even respond, but I was ready the next three times. And it's hard because you want to be humble and gentle in these uh, situations, but also you're confronting an untruth. Uh, but here's, here's the statement, okay? The Bible teaches that it's okay for husbands to beat their wives. Four times. The first time I heard it, I, was just, I, was I couldn't even move. I couldn't even respond. But like I said, I was ready the next three times. And when it came up, I just, hey, uh, wait, uh, can we stop there? I would like to just ask some questions about that. Because I've read the Bible quite a bit. And, and I went to, you know, Jesus school and all that stuff. You know, <laughs> Fuller, you know and and i don't recall ever seeing anything in there and i would say, here you go we're you know we're working on degrees now so i would ask an academic question could you give me the citation please you must have a citation oh no no it's just that everybody knows commonly that that you know the bible says it's okay for husbands to beat their wives and i said again I've never read that in the Bible. In fact, here's what I've read in Ephesians 5.25. Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, husbands are to give up everything for their wives. That doesn't sound exactly like that to me. You know, we're often called to stand up against injustice and that's good. We should. If anybody's going to stand up, I feel like it should be the church. But we also need to be willing to stand up and just say, no, I think you're wrong about that. I think you're wrong. And then you get to verses 17 through 21, and, and he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. And again, here's where you get into all of these second references and why it gets so, so murky for us. Um, the ancient teachers of the Old Testament believe that these verses from the prophet Joel reference the Messianic age, which would mean Jesus. Uh, and so Peter quotes it. And of course, in Joel, it says that when the Messiah comes, God's going to pour his spirit out for salvation, for empowerment, for wisdom, for the conviction of sin, and for judgment, and that there are going to be signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders are going to be for the purpose of pointing people to God, not for the purpose of temporal satisfaction and pleasure, although some may experience that. But the ultimate purpose of these signs and wonders is to point people to God. That's the purpose, and to affirm who God is. Verse 20 then, however, references the final judgment. So there's this messianic age which then leads to the final judgment because the final judgment can only happen after the Messiah comes. And Peter's saying, the Messiah's come now. And so... Joel talks about that final judgment and the sun and the moon and all that stuff there. That signifies the final consummation of the earth, preparing for its restoration, not its elimination, but its restoration into the new Jerusalem, which we see in Revelation 21 and 22. The Messianic age brings this final judgment closer. It's unavoidable. And what what Peter is saying here is that we need rescue from that. And verse 21 tells us how we are rescued from that, and it's through Jesus, who is Messiah. And then you look at this next paragraph, 22 through 28. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he quotes King David from a psalm, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So look again. Here you go. There's a connection between 21 and 22. 21 says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So he's making the connection. The Lord that we need to call upon is Jesus. That's the connection there. And then you look at verses 23 and 24. And there's this sort of rhetorical um, uh, device that is used here that that is kind of a, a sandwich. So verse twenty three says God is sovereign; He's in complete control. But verse twenty three also then says, but human beings have agency. We have a will; we can do we can do things. God is sovereign, but we have agency; we we can act and we can do things. But then verse twenty four comes back and says, but God is sovereign. So God is sovereign. We have agency. God is sovereign. So here's what we have to kind of get our heads around, which is really hard. God's sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time. A lot of people push back against this idea of God's sovereignty because they want to say, well, then I'm not responsible or accountable for anything I do if he's really sovereign. No, you are. And there's a t- I, I admit, there's a tension there. We wrestle with that tension. God is sovereign, but I still have agency. And that's why we need faith. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, which is what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. So Peter is saying to, to the Jews right there, he's saying, you guys killed him, by the way. And, and he's, he's not indicting them. He's merely making an observation. He said, you guys killed him. You decided to kill him. You wanted to kill him. You guys killed him, but God raised him. So here you go. People can have their way. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. Read Romans chapter 1. We have agency. We have wills. And there are times when God looks at us and we fight back against God so desperately that God finally says, okay, have it your way. Have it your way. So there is tension there. But God is ultimately in control, even in the midst of our responsibility. Here's how Andy Stanley Sums up these two verses. You killed him, God raised him, say you're sorry. <laughs> Peter just wants them to say, I'm sorry, I repent. We shouldn't have done this. That's all he's trying to get them to do is acknowledge this. Okay? And then at the end of verse 24. He reminds them that death could not hold Jesus, that Jesus has victory over death. And then verses 26 through 28 is Peter's citation of Psalm 16 that physical death is not the end for the Christian. In this psalm, King David prophesied about a descendant of his, Jesus, who would not be abandoned to the grave. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus, and he's from the line of David. Next paragraph, 29 through 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So At first glance, it seems as though in this citation of Psalm 110, that David is the one that's being talked about, but it's not. It's actually King David, a thousand years earlier, who is now in his prophet mode, talking about Jesus and his resurrection. So Peter is Using this psalm, this thousand-year-old song to a psalm to affirm what he has seen, what he has witnessed, that this is what God said was going to happen a thousand years ago through his King David. That Jesus, who was alive, then crucified, is now alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then look at verse 36. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is Savior and King. He's the rescuer and the ruler. You can't have one without the other. This is really important. And notice that the Lord is first. If he is not Lord, then he's not Savior. He can't be Savior without first being the Lord. Now, many, many people I know want Jesus as their Savior, but they sure don't want to submit to him as their Lord. That's a problem. That's a problem. He must be Lord first before he can be Savior. Must. And Peter keeps pounding the point that they were the ones that crucified him. He just, he just keeps hammering away. "This does not make Peter the most popular guy in Jerusalem. I just want you to know that. But Peter's not doing it to, do, to be a jerk. He's just arguing, this is what God said was going to happen. And the Lordship and salvation of Jesus has come. In the last paragraph, 37 through41. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this is the result of this sermon that Peter gets up and preaches. The spirit moved, and the sermon was effective. People were cut to the heart. They were laid bare. Their hopelessness and their helplessness was made obvious and their desire and their desire for salvation flooded their hearts. And I'll tell you, we don't have a whole lot of that today. This idea of being cut to our hearts. And the reason is because we're pretty sure we can save ourselves. No problem. We have the latest and greatest ideas and philosophies and worldviews and technologies and systems. C.S. Lewis last last century wrote about this. This idea that every single generation thinks that just by the fact that they're alive now and not then, they're smarter than everybody else who's lived before them. And he gave it a name. It's called chronological snobbery. We're alive today, so we must be better and smarter. Chronological snobbery. Um, The academic Thomas Solwell writes this. Reading about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and the widespread retrogressions of Western civilization that followed was an experience that was sobering, if not crushing. Ancient history in general lets us know how long human beings have been the way they are and dampens giddy zeal for the latest panaceas despite how attractive and seemingly comfortable those panaceas may be. That's just wisdom right there. And by the way, that's academic wisdom. And then verse 15, uh, I'm sorry, 38, Peter says, and you need to call on the name of Jesus. That's kind of new, the name of Jesus. So what, is, what does that mean, the name of Jesus? Well, in the Bible, the name is more than just a label. It represents the entire being of the person being referenced, who he is, who she is, the character, what they can do. And so calling on the name of Jesus means you are calling on Jesus. And it's for the forgiveness of sins. So this is serious. And people have wrestled with this for millennia. We know, that, we know that something's wrong. Amen? We know there's something wrong. Just look around you. Just drive on the 101 for five minutes. There's something wrong with this world, okay? And even worse things. The problem is we don't want to acknowledge our part in it. We just don't. The very first sin committed in, Acts, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve eat the apple. Very first sin. And the first thing that happens is they hide themselves from each other. And then they hide from God who comes to walk with them in the cool of the day. He used to do that every day with them. This is the first time they've ever hidden from God. So God comes and says, hey, where are you? He's not in... He's not, it's not a geographical question. God isn't thinking, hey, Adam's really clever. I can't find him. He's, he's asking him, he's asking him to think deeply about who he is now. Where are you? What happened? And then he confronts Adam. The first sin was denying true authority. So rebelling against God. Here's the second sin. He says, did you eat the apple that I told you, the fruit that I told you not to eat? And what, what, what does Adam do? The woman, you gave me. Her fault, and it's your fault. I, I'm an innocent bystander. I just went like that. That's all I did. Okay? That's our proclivity. We don't want to acknowledge our part in this. So we try to legitimize our sin. We try to minimize the effects of our sin. We, we say things like, truth is bound by context so I can do whatever I want because my context is different than your context. I hear this all the time. Never put a leash on your desires. Let them run wild. What happens when desires start to clash? As long as I love, whatever I do cannot be wrong. If loving you is <laughs> wrong, I don't want to be, you know, anyway. I don't want to sing anymore. I got to quit singing, I know. <laughs> and then there's just, "Oh, no, there is no God and there is no judgment. That's the end of the conversation. But many here were moved by the Holy Spirit and they come to Jesus, and the count, how many? 3,000. 3,000. Wow, Peter's a great preacher. Not really. Not really. The resurrection changes things, and the Holy Spirit is powerful. That's what happened here. Listen, Listen to this. We have to make sure we understand who God is and who we are. So I give you this example. This incredible property that we have, that we could never afford any other way unless it was largely gifted to us. In the middle of a, a, an area in Phoenix where there is no property, for sale or otherwise, that we could get a hold of. And the fact that we got to move here and that this is, this is now ours. Just an amazing miracle. Was, did this happen because I, your grand leader, have tremendous business instinct? Is that what it was? Is this, is this because of this incredible seminary curriculum that I went through 20 years ago prepared me for this moment to recognize a deal when I saw it? Is that what it is? Here you go. It's the clever nature of our entire elder board. That's what did it. It's all the elders. They're so smart. No. You know what I am? I'm a play-by-play announcer. That's all I am. And that's all that Peter is as well. That's what he is. He's a play-by-play announcer. It's a great moment for me. Not the greatest, but a great moment. A few of you in this room will remember it. 1980, the Olympic, Winter Olympic gold medal hockey game, semifinal hockey game between the United States and Russia. The last time Russia had played the United States, Russia won 10 to one. The United States had never beaten Russia, and they're playing now in the semifinals for the gold medal in, in the Olympics. And you remember who won that game, right? Do you remember the last few seconds of that. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Al Michaels was calling the game and with four seconds left, he yelled, do you believe in miracles? Yes! Did Al Michaels win that game? He's just a play-by-play announcer. And yet we remember Al Michaels. We remember Al Michaels. He's just a play-by-play announcer. Here's what Peter's doing. He's doing what he's been called and empowered to do. And that's exactly what you and I need to do. We need to do what we've been called to do and what we've been empowered to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Two more takeaways of application before I'm done. Number one, by the power of the resurrection, Jesus... By the power of the resurrected Jesus... And his Holy Spirit, God saves us and works in us so we can rest and be at peace. Saves us from what? We've talked about this. The consequence of sin, to be sure. But also, he gives us the, insura- the assurance of completion. It's what we're all looking for. All of us are looking for this idea of fulfillment or completion. It's that God-shaped vacuum that's been described by many philosophers Uh, In the Old Testament, Solomon writes this book, Ecclesiastes, and in chapter 3, he says this. Eternity has been placed in our heart, yet we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, what he's saying is that we have a desire to understand everything, but a human limitation to be able to do so. Jesus fulfills that. He comes into our hearts, and and, and he gives us not only wisdom and insight, but also contentment for the things that we, we don't know. And then this idea of rest... Or peace. It's not inactivity. It's not like I like to do sitting on the couch with my Cheetos and my Diet Mountain Dew watching Netflix. It's not that. True rest and true peace is not the absence of turmoil or activity, but it's simply the presence of God. It is contentment. It is the idea that we have an urgency for mission, but a heart that's at rest and at peace as we do it. That's really important. We should have an urgency for mission, but the minute we get anxiety and stress about it, we're relying too much on us and not enough on God, who is the one who powers us. And that gives us hope. The hope that though things aren't the way they should be now, they are going to be. There's a coming harmony. And here's the second thing. Jesus is alive, and so those who are in Christ have power. Jesus beat death. That is some kind of power, man. He defeated death, the only one to ever do it. And his spirit is poured out. I think that a fitting end to this message would be to read what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, the last part of chapter 3. Just listen to what Paul is writing here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, we do uh, seek this power and this peace. And God, it can only come about through your grace, your love, your mercy, your sacrifice. And so we're thankful for that. God, make that a reality in our lives as we wrestle with a world that is really tough. God, we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.